This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Amir Eshel. I'm a professor of German studies here at Stanford and the director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe at the Freeman Spogel Institute for International Studies. It is a great pleasure and delight to welcome you to today's uh, seminar with Professor Asher Sasser from Tel Aviv University. Professor Sasser is the Director for External Affairs of the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Tel Aviv University. He was a director of that center from 1989 to 1995, and again from 2001 to 2007. Professor Sasser has taught for over 25 years in Tel Aviv University's Department of Middle Eastern History, and is presently a visiting professor at Brandeis University. Professor Sasser received his PhD in Modern Middle Eastern uh, History from Tel Aviv University. His research and teaching has focused on uh, Middle Eastern history, religion and state in the Middle East, and Arab-Israeli issues, with special reference and emphasis on Jordan and the Palestinians. He has taught before as visiting professor at Cornell University, the University of Chicago, and uh, Brandeis University in 1998, where he's also teaching this year. Uh, if I had uh, named here all his scholarly publications, we probably spent uh, the time just counting and naming them. Allow me to mention only a few. The political biography of Jordan's Prime Minister, Waspi El Tal. Uh, another book is called Jordan, Case Study of a Pivotal State. And most recently, he edited a volume called Six Days, Thirty Years, New Perspectives on the Six Days War. That book came out in Hebrew in 1999. The title of his presentation today is, and I quote, The Middle East Peace Process, European, U.S., Greater Middle East Efforts for Progress. Professor Sasser, welcome to Stanford. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Amir, for your very kind uh, introduction. I prefer to stand so that I can uh, see you uh, all when I speak. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here at uh, an institution that uh, I don't think there's anybody in the, in the Western world who hasn't heard of it. Uh, your reputation is uh, phenomenal, and it's really a great privilege uh, to be here in this august place. Uh, talking about uh, the peace process in Europe and the U.S., I think it would be uh, important, in my view, uh, to have a look at the Middle Eastern architecture that has changed over the last uh, few decades, and then venture into how the Middle East peace process can proceed uh, better or or not so, uh, in reference to how the architecture has changed over the last few decades. Uh, I will start with a, a brief quotation from an article that appeared in the Egyptian daily Al-Haram, written by uh, Hassan Nafa, who is a professor of political science at Cairo University. I think this in, I use this quotation only to, to bring before you what I think is a, a stunning revelation of the extent to which the states of the Middle East today sense anxiety and uncertainty in reference to the state order and the stability of the state order in the aftermath of Iraq. Throughout the Arab countries, says Hassan Nafa, 
A common denominator prevails. Overwhelming anxiety over the future of the Arab world. Of the danger that the Arab order will collapse entirely and the whole region will fall into protracted chaos and bloodshed. There was a risk of comprehensive chaos and the fragmentation of the Arab world into rival sectarian entities. Therefore, the most urgent task is to keep the existing states from shattering into even smaller entities founded upon narrow sectarian, ethnic, or tribal affiliations and to steer the Arab world out of its present era of darkness. I could bring you a hundred quotations like that. This is the fallout of Iraq. The fallout of Iraq and the pervasive sense that Iraq may split into its constituent elements, Sunnis and Shi'is, Arabs and Kurds. And if that were to happen, what would happen to other countries in the Middle East that may go down the same path? Syria also has a heterogeneous population like Iraq. So does Lebanon. And one could go through a, a list of a variety of countries. What Iraq tells us, and I will come back to this uh, further down the road, is how primordial sub-state identities are re-emerging as somewhat more emphatic and powerful than the state. People are Sunnis and Shi'is, Maronites and Druze, before they are Lebanese or Syrians or Iraqis. And maybe Palestinians are Muslims first and Palestinians second. Thus the victories of Hamas. There is a notable retreat of secular nationalism across the board. And I think this is an observation that one should bear in mind when we look at the region and what the potentials are for doing what it is that we would like to do. And this is very relevant, I think, also to Europe in particular in reference to Turkey, Turkey's place in the region, Turkey's place in Europe, uh, and what this means for the peace process in the longer run. But the U.S. operation in Iraq and the fact that the Arab states, looking at this U.S. invasion, individually, collectively, the public at large, the governments, didn't lift a finger. It is inconceivable that the U.S. would have occupied Iraq in 1960, or even in 1970, because of two things. Because of what the Arabs may have done, but more importantly, what the Soviet Union may have done. The Soviet Union isn't there anymore. And the Arab states are considerably weaker, partly because of that, but mainly because of other matters. The other matters relate, I would argue, in the main, to the socio-economic decline of the Middle Eastern countries. They are poorer than they used to be. They are more populous than they used to be. The Middle East is becoming an area that cannot sustain its population and its people are emigrating. This is changing the face of Europe as we know and has, I think, long-term regional and international ramifications. Politically, 
if we look at the key Arab states of the past, there were four. Four key Arab states that were the great movers and shakers of Middle Eastern affairs. A gentleman from a competing university down the road at uh, UCLA, Malcolm Kerr, who the name, anyone who's done anything on the Middle East may remember the name. Malcolm Kerr wrote a, a brilliant little book in the 1960s called The Arab Cold War, Abdel Nasser and his rivals. Now, we can sit and talk about the Middle East for three hours without even mentioning Egypt today. Anybody who begins to talk about the Middle East today starts with Iran. In the 1960s, you could talk about the Middle East for hours. Nobody would talk about Iran. Iran wasn't on anybody's screen in terms of Middle Eastern politics. What was the center is now the periphery, and what was once the periphery has become the center. Things have changed. The periphery of the Middle East um, has now become the center in terms of the Arab-Israeli conflict, Cairo, Damascus, are not nearly as central as Iran-Iraq have become. Iran-Iraq, the Gulf, oil, there are a host of issues here that refocus uh, what the center of the Middle East is today. This center of the Middle East and this centrality of Iran to, to Middle Eastern issues tells us something about the region that I draw to your attention and I think that we should all you know, uh, bear in mind and, and think of analytically. <clears throat> For more than a century, people who have looked at the Middle East and referred to it as the Arab world or the Arab world and the Middle East as interchangeable terms. I would argue that these terms are way out of date. The Middle East is no longer governed by the Arab states. It's not the Arab states who set the regional agenda in the Middle East. It's, in some cases, external players, like the United States, and to a much lesser degree, the Europeans, of course. But the key players in the region today are the non-Arab states of the region, of which there are three. Iran, Turkey, and Israel. These are the key movers and shakers of the Middle Eastern countries. None of them is an Arab state. The key Arab states of decades past were mainly four. Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. <coughs> Two examples of what has happened to Egypt will suffice, I think, to make the point I wish to make. The one is Darfur, and the other is Gaza. Both border on Egypt. In the 1950s, Egypt claimed the Sudan as its own territory. So much was the Sudan part of Egypt's understanding of what its national interests were. Today, Egypt has no say in the Sudan. The genocide in Darfur has nothing to do with Egypt. It's not Egypt's fault. It's not Egypt's responsibility. And, and the last thing I would like to do is to shift the blame onto Egypt in any way. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, however, is that Egypt has no influence in the Sudan, which is not the way it used to be. Gaza was taken over by Hamas, literally under the noses of the Egyptians. 
Egypt had a very significant intelligence presence in Gaza. They knew what was happening in Gaza. They didn't want this to happen, and it happened anyway. <clears throat> there is a limit, and I would say a very serious limit, to what it is that Egypt can deliver. Egypt cannot deliver Fatah. It cannot deliver Hamas. Uh, it is not the great Arab leader that it once was that people may expect of it to deliver other players. It cannot and will not do so. I think Egypt's major problem is to come to terms with this new reality. The Egyptians still have a self-perception of themselves as a great leading power, uh, but in practice uh, they have much less sway in the region than they used to. Syria is but a shadow of its former self. The assassinations that we read about in Lebanon almost uh, on a weekly basis, including one just uh, a day or two ago, which everybody seems to think inside the region and outside the region, everybody points the finger at the Syrians. It probably is them, but this is not a sign of Syrian strength. This is a sign of Syrian weakness. They resort to measures that create great difficulty for them internationally, and particularly with the US, because they're no longer present in Lebanon to settle scores as they could do in the past. Syria has been evicted from Lebanon, if not to say kicked out of Lebanon. Two dramatic changes have taken place in Syria's regional stature. One is the disappearance of the Soviet Union. Syria has Iran as a strategic hinterland, but Iran is not the Soviet Union and will never be the Soviet Union. At best, a third-rate replacement for the Soviet Union as a strategic hinterland. When the Soviet Union was at the height of its regional influence, there were things that Israel would never dream of doing vis-a-vis -vis Syria out of fear that there would be Soviet intervention. That gave Syria a kind of protective umbrella vis-a-vis -vis Israel, which does not exist anymore. And therefore, raids by the Israeli Air Force on Syrian targets, such as the one that took place a few months ago, and the Syrians, I think, um, got the message, and it does indicate this uh, imbalance, uh, strategic imbalance between uh, Israel and Syria, and not in Syria's favor. The other change is... Uh, the passing of uh, Hafez al-Assad and his uh, the succession by his son Bashar. Bashar is a poor replacement for his father. Uh, not the kind of uh, leader with the charisma, the clout, the respect that people had uh, for Hafez is not present in the equation today with Syria. And in that respect, Syria leadership-wise is considerably weaker than it once was. Syria is also surrounded by the United States and its allies. Syria is surrounded by states that are friendly towards the United States. And for the meantime, Iraq has become a province of the United States. And that, for the Syrians, is an enormous pressure. The Syrians are seriously constrained in what it is they can or cannot do in the region with 150,000 American soldiers sitting next door. But that brings me to Iraq. Iraq was a great player in the Middle East. And in the old days, when Abdel Nasser was at the height of his power, Iraq was very often the counterweight to Abdel Nasser. And people used to talk about Baghdad versus Cairo and Cairo versus Baghdad. Well, Iraq, we don't even know if Iraq will still be there next week. And Iraq certainly is not a regional player anymore. It's just falling apart, maybe. And that uh, is a very ominous uh, signal to other players in the region, as this quotation that I read uh, previously suggests. Lastly, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, I think, is a greatly overrated inter uh, re regional power. People think that Saudi wealth uh, covers for the lack of uh, other uh, military resources. It doesn't. 
uh, and Saudi Arabia, uh, for example, was very influential in getting Fatah and Hamas to sign the Mecca Agreement. And the Mecca Agreement, the, the ink on the Mecca Agreement had hardly dried when Hamas threw Fatah out of Gaza. And what exactly are the Saudis going to do about that? Uh, not much. Saudi Arabia is not even as wealthy as it once was. And just by taking GDP per capita as one's yardstick of measurement, Israel is wealthier than Saudi Arabia. That may sound a little strange to some people here, and, uh, but it is a fact. Israel's GDP per capita is around about $20,000. Saudi Arabia is around about fourteen, fifteen, and that is only because oil prices are now $100 a barrel. Just a while ago, when oil prices were lower, Saudi Arabia's GDP per capita was even much lower. There was a time just a year or two ago where Israel's GDP per capita was twice as high as that of Saudi Arabia. And some of the Saudis don't have money. It's because their population is going through the roof. Saudi Arabia had a population in the early 80s of around about 7 million. They have a population today which is coming close to 30. 26, 27, some say even 30. <clears throat> but even if it's only 26 or so, it's uh, almost four times the size of the population of Saudi Arabia in the early 80s. So even oil wealth doesn't compensate for that kind of population growth. So who are the movers and shakers? Iran first and foremost. And Iran is a, a regional, I would say, not an international superpower, but a regional superpower. And this has been, the rise of Iran as a regional superpower has been accelerated by uh, the US invasion of Iraq. I would imagine an unintended consequence, but uh, life is all about unintended consequences, and this is one of them. For decades, if not to say even centuries, when Iraq, before Iraq became Iraq, when Iraq was still part of the Ottoman Empire, it is that area, that part of the Arab region, that was the bulwark against Iranian regional penetration. Iraq was the gatekeeper to the Arab East. That gatekeeper has been crushed. There is therefore no block in the Arab East to Iranian penetration. Moreover, removing Saddam and the Ba'ath Party uh, in Iraq also meant the disempowering of the Sunnis as a community and the empowering of the Shi'is. That may be very democratic. The Shi'is are the majority in Iraq, and this may be an act of historical justice. But it's also an act that gives Iran a greater foothold in Iraq than it has ever had in, in recent history. Iraq is now ruled by Shiites who are the co-religionists of the Iranian Shi, who are Shiites too. And thus you have in the making what King Abdullah of Jordan called this Iranian Shiite crescent of influence. Tehran, Baghdad, alliance with Syria, and then the Shi'is, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Iran is now a power that has a sphere of influence on the eastern Mediterranean, not in the Persian Gulf, on the eastern Mediterranean. The war between Israel and Hezbollah in the summer of 2006 is therefore not another Arab-Israeli war and should not be counted as another Arab-Israeli war. This was the first regional clash between these two new regional hegemonic powers, Israel and Iran. Lebanon was just the proxy arena and Hezbollah the proxy player. And the whole fight over the future of Lebanon as you see it today in the paper with the assassination of this Lebanese general and the fight over the presidency of Lebanon is not about Lebanon. It's about the regional architecture. 
It is about the future of the Middle East. Is Lebanon still a Sunni, part of the Sunni Muslim Arab world, even though it has a very significant Christian component? But Lebanon made its decision many years ago in the 1940s that it could not rely on the protection of France, the Christians in Lebanon, could not rely on the protection of France. France was occupied by the Germans. And when France was occupied by the Germans, the, the Christians in Lebanon understood that France could not, couldn't protect Paris. They couldn't do much for the Christians in Lebanon. And therefore, Lebanon joined the Arab League. And Je Lebanon became a founding member of the Arab League and part and parcel of what we call the Arab world. Is Lebanon still part and parcel of this Sunni Muslim dominated Arab world? Or is Lebanon being sucked into this Iranian Shiite sphere of influence? This is what the fight over Lebanon is really about. And in this fight over the future of the regional architecture, Israel and key Arab states are on the same side of the divide. In the old days, when Malcolm Kerr wrote this great book about the Arab Cold War, no matter in which camp Arab states were, monarchists versus republicans and pro-Soviet versus pro-Americans, they were all against Israel. No longer true. The major enemy that very many Arab states see today is not Israel, but Iran. And therefore, Israel and some key Arab states are on the same side of this divide to maintain Lebanon, for example, as one of the building blocks of the Sunni Muslim Arab world rather than a building block in this Iranian Shiite crescent of influence. Iraq is the one and only Arab state dominated by the Shia. Lebanon is on the way to becoming the same because the Shia are the largest community in Lebanon. It makes a big difference. If the Lebanese Shia take over <coughs> and they are still part of the Arab world, which then doesn't make much of a difference, or if the Lebanese Shia take over as part of Iranian hegemonic design. The result may be the same. The context is very different. The second player emerging as a much more important uh, regional actor is Turkey. And this has a lot to do with matters that uh, people here are more deeply involved in with Europe. Turkey is becoming a Middle East actor far more intensively than the Ataturk Republican Turkey would have ever imagined. First of all, the Middle East is breathing down the Turks' necks. Whether they like it or not, Iraq is next door. And what America has done in Iraq, unfortunately, is no great benefit for the Turks. No great benefit, by the way, for any of America's friends in the Middle East. Jordan, Israel, and the Turks are those who are suffering the fallout of Iraq more than anyone else. And the power in the Middle East enjoying the fallout of Iraq more than anyone else is Iran. <coughs> Turkey, with the Kurdish almost independent state in northern Iraq, is obviously in a bit of a quandary vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, the, the results of this war. And Turkey is being sucked into Middle Eastern politics far more simply by the weakness of its neighbors on the one hand and the rise of this Kurdish independence or quasi-independence on the other. Islamic politics in Turkey are on the rise too. You have an Islamist government in power, elected in 2002, re-elected in 2007. This also speaks very highly of what it is the Turks think about their place in the world. And with Islamist governments in power, the tendency of Turkey to look at its Islamic hinterland as part of domestic politics is increasing ever more 
far more than at any time during the heyday of the Ataturk Republic. Thirdly, the Europeans are pushing the Turks out of Europe. And I think the Turks understand pretty well that with positions in Europe like Germany, Austria, France, and other major players, Turkey is not going to be a member of the EU. And if Turkey is being pushed out of Europe, it will become much more of a Middle Eastern player, much more of a Middle Eastern power, as much as the European orientation of Turkey is frustrated by the Europeans themselves. This denies the Europeans, this denies the Europeans access to Middle Eastern politics. A great advantage that the EU could enjoy from the admission of Turkey to the EU would be an EU player deep inside Middle Eastern politics. That you will never have for the Europeans without the Turks. No one in Europe can offer the Europeans that advantage. No Greeks, no Germans, no Swedes. It, only the Turks could do that. And if the Europeans have decided to push the Turks out, they must understand this is the consequence. The other consequence could very well be a reaffirmation of Turkey's Islamist orientation. If the Europeans reject us, what kind of games are we trying to play with this Western secularism? Let's be what the Islamists say we are. We are not really part of Europe. The third player, the third regional power of consequence in this new architecture is, of course, Israel. But I would say that Israel does not quite compare with either Turkey or Iran. Not in size, not in population, and I would say not in the extent of its regional potential. Israel is extremely influential in its immediate surroundings, but not much further than that. So Israel has enormous power in comparison to the immediate vicinity. It could hardly play the role of a regional superpower, the likes of which Turkey, uh, the inheritor of the Ottoman Empire, or Iran with 70 million people and considerable oil wealth, could eventually do. The third component of this shifting architecture which I've already alluded to in part, and I will just only uh, reassert, is the changing balance of power between Sunnah and Shia. The Shi'is are on the rise. This hasn't happened very often in the history of uh, the Muslim world. The Shi'is, since the 7th century, with the exception of a brief interlude in the 10th century, the Shi'is have been the downtrodden underclass of a Sunni-dominated Muslim Arab world. This is no longer true. And if you listen to the way Ahmadinejad talks, or to the way Nasrallah spoke until the war with Israel in the summer of 06, these people speak with a considerable measure of self-assurance, with the impression that this is Shiite time. This is at long last Shiite time. And amazingly, in certain parts of the Arab world, there is a phenomenon which Arabs call Tashayu, Tashayu in Arabic means to convert to Shia. Sunnis are converting to Shia. Not in large numbers. A few hundred here, a few hundred there. But this is an amazing social phenomenon. 
the kind of understanding among Sunnis that the Shi'is must be doing right if they're facing the West with such uh, success. Defying the United States, defying Israel. There must be something that the Shia is doing right. I don't think that when these people who convert to Shia, it has nothing to do with Shiite religious dogma. It's a political choice. It's a question of one's uh, political affinities. But socially, it is people from the downtrodden underclass, historically, who are now being accepted as something to aspire to, but what has always been the historical upper class. A very strange uh, uh, set of uh, social changes that are indicative of this shift in the balance of power and in the imagery of Sunnah and Shia. But talking so much about Sunnah and Shia is really a reflection of what I said a few minutes ago about the retreat of secular nationalism. Primordial identities are resurfacing. You see this all over the place. And this is a reflection of the certain weakness of the state order. And Iraq again is the example. The state order was very stable, colonial, illegitimate, but remained very stable. When Saddam Hussein in 1990 tried to overturn the state order and invaded Kuwait, all the Arabs were against him with the US to restore the old colonial state order. It is now the US which is upsetting the state order. The fear of the breakup of Iraq and what the breakup of Iraq could mean for the rest of the state order. Lebanon is tottering on the verge of civil war. On again, off again, every week, a new story, but very unstable. The Palestinians don't yet have a state, but they already have two governments. There is a sense of um, breakup a sense of destabilizing and carving up what one uh, Arab uh, writer refers to as the revival of medieval tribalism. What he means is the subversion of the state order by sub-state identities. Even in interstate relations, it's about Sunnis versus Shi'is. In the past, it used to be, you know, the pro-Soviets versus the pro-Americans, etc. It's now the Sunni Arab states versus Iran, Iran and Iraq as uh, Shiite states, the fear of Shiite subversion in the Gulf. There are Shiite minorities in the Gulf states. Saudi Arabia has a Shiite minority sitting in eastern Saudi Arabia, exactly where all the oil is. If in the 1950s and the 1960s people feared communist subversion, or Arab nationalist subversion, the secular kind of subversion. What people fear now is the subversion of the Shi'is by the Iranians. It's about primordial politics, even on the interstate level. And this is what pushes the Sunni Arab states to come to Annapolis and to sit with Israel and with the United States in an effort to create an alliance vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But I call this an alliance of anxiety. The members of this alliance are anxious powers who lack confidence, whose power has been in decline in recent years. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan. And the Iranians are on the other side, self-assured, very confident that things are going their way. Not the subject of my talk, but just as an aside, if I were the Iranians, and I read this intelligence report, this new assessment, 
the moment I finished reading the bottom line, I renewed my uh, nuclear program. Sure. And I'm sure that that is the, if, if I were them, that's exactly what I would do. I have really, coming from another part of the universe, uh, strange for me to see intelligence reports discussed in the newspaper. Uh, you know, that's not what intelligence reports are supposed to be. I don't know why they publicized this the way they did. It's really off the wall in my view. Uh, and with extremely negative consequences, whether the report is right or wrong. Um, now, how does Annapolis and the aftermath of Annapolis um, fit in to this regional architecture? Can US involvement with what I call a complementary European role, and this complementary European role is a term, complementary is a term I learned from Ambassador Moratinos, uh, who used to be the Spanish ambassador to Israel. And when he used to talk about the European role, he, he used to say that, you know, obviously the European role cannot substitute for that of the United States, but it can be complementary to that of the United States. Complementary, i.e. not contradictory, but complementary. And there is a complementary role that the Europeans can play, but it is a role that I think the Europeans will never be satisfied with, and the extent of its influence is also um, not that large. It's always about money, and to a certain degree, uh, with Tony Blair, institution building. But quite honestly, I must confess, the money is crucially important. There is no way in which the Palestinian government could survive without uh, this injection of uh, European financial support. About the institution building and the capability of the Europeans to create for the Palestinians a domestic political order that the Europeans would like, I think is a, is a long shot. It is as long a shot as the, U as the Americans democratizing Iraq. I have a fundamental um, doubt in principle of the capacity of external players to engineer other people's societies for them. I'm not a great believer in the capacity of the Europeans to teach the Palestinians how it is that they should build their institutions. Hamas and Fatah will work it out between them, I would imagine, in a much more effective manner. May not a desirable manner, but it will influence the results, I think, more than uh, European uh, teachings and preachings about institutional organization. But <coughs> financing Palestinian political stability is obviously critical, and I would think complementary to that of the US role. But what is the US role? And here I think we should look at what happened in Annapolis and try and understand what really took place there. There are two possibilities. One is that the US will get the Palestinians and the Israelis to agree on what we call final status. That there will be the ultimate final agreement, and the Israelis and the Palestinians will make peace two states, settlement of all outstanding issues, Jerusalem, refugees, borders, etc. A long shot, which I don't think the US can induce the players to produce either, with or without European complementary activity. The two players, Israel and the Palestinians, could not produce a document preceding Annapolis that would suggest that they were approaching such an agreement. Annapolis did not produce such a document either. What did Annapolis do? It redrafted the roadmap of President Bush from five years, four years back. The roadmap has the wisdom, I would argue, of an 
incremental approach. We therefore must take a step back from the idea of a final status agreement which cannot be achieved at present. And Annapolis only proved that both before, during, and after. An incremental approach based on a clear understanding of the US, the Europeans, the Israelis, and the Palestinians. A clear understanding, distinction between what is doable at present and what is not. Don't aim for the moon. Because those who do are courting failure. And courting failure in our business is a disaster. This is the Clinton 2000 effort. No American president more versed in Middle Eastern affairs than he, more immersed in Middle affairs than he, but the process failed. And what followed was the worst years of bloodshed and warfare between Israelis and Palestinians ever since 1948. Courting failure sends the parties in desperation back to the battlefield. Not a great idea. One should court success. To succeed, one must define objectives that are realistically attainable. And thus, the role of the Americans and the Europeans sitting down with Israelis and Palestinians is to work out what is attainable at present. And I think there is an attainable deal at present, but it's not end of conflict. Somewhere in between, between nothing and all, there is a midway station. An interim arrangement that will be based on the following. First, a secure ceasefire. The small potatoes that we have not yet achieved. People talk about solving the historical issues. We don't even have a stable ceasefire. Without a stable ceasefire, there will be nothing. Israelis will not concede an inch as long as the rockets continue to fly from Gaza into Israeli towns nearby. There has to be a stable ceasefire. Once there is a stable ceasefire, there can be an exchange of prisoners a relaxation of Israeli security measures and impositions in the West Bank, the checkpoints, etc., etc., which would allow for the Palestinian economy to get back onto its feet, which would allow the Palestinians to negotiate from a position of somewhat greater comfort. But all of this rests on a stable ceasefire. And that, of course, requires of the Israelis not to engage in their own provocations, the settlement activity for which I will say nothing in positive terms. Uh, I've never been a great settler, and I'm not one now, and I will never say anything in its defense. <clears throat> but without a stable ceasefire, there is no progress at all. Then we should think of what the second phase of the uh, roadmap speaks of. A Palestinian state in provisional boundaries which means an Israeli withdrawal from significant segments of the West Bank, the creation of a two-state reality, leaving Jerusalem and refugees for later. Until now, the Palestinians have opposed this approach. They have always suspected of the Israelis that interim for the Israelis means permanent. The Israelis have the opposite fear, that for the Palestinians, 
permanent means interim. And how does one bridge these different uh, conflicting fears is, is a major problem. But it is around Abu Mazen today, there are those who are reconsidering. Maybe it is better to go towards an interim approach. This is what is possible at present. And it is also possible <coughs> that Hamas may acquiesce in interim more than Hamas could possibly acquiesce in final. Interim does not require of Hamas to abandon any of its great historical beliefs. Final does. Final would require of Hamas not just to acquiesce, but to recognize Israel and to do all that Hamas has vowed not to do. Interim lets them off the hook in that respect. Therefore, an interim arrangement, which wouldn't be end of conflict, may be more easier for the Israelis to digest and easier for Palestinians and even for Hamas to digest. Because what has changed in the recent past? With this retreat of secular nationalism, the weakness of Abu Mazen, the person, is not the problem. And those who keep on repeating this mantra, Abu Mazen is weak, Abu Mazen is weak. Not that they're wrong, but that's not the issue. The issue is that Palestinian secular nationalism is in retreat, even if one changes Abu Mazen's feathers. Abu Mazen's feathers is not the issue, but the retreat of Palestinian secular nationalism. The greatest achievement of the PLO in all time was to gain the recognition first of the Arabs, then of the international community, which Israel had to accept as well in later years, was the recognition of the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians. And as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians, Israel had to speak to the PLO. It couldn't speak to Jordan as it may have preferred, couldn't speak to the Palestinians <coughs> in the West Bank and Gaza, which it also may have preferred. But today the PLO is not the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians. Hamas doesn't even recognize them as such. Therefore, the PLO has lost the most important asset it ever had. This is dramatic stuff. And this changes the nature of the Israeli-Palestinian interaction. By definition, Abu Mazen and the PLO cannot deliver without Hamas giving the OK. Hamas must acquiesce. Otherwise, Abu Mazen cannot sign the deal. Speaking about the stable ceasefire as the precondition, there are some who think the Israeli foreign ministry, minister has been quoted uh, recently uh, as having suggested this, that foreign forces should be introduced to Gaza. Foreign forces very often means Europeans. Beyond the financial and the, the institution building, the Europeans as protectors of a stable ceasefire. And there's a good example. Israel used to be against this almost in principle. But there is a good example which has softened the Israeli position, and that is what is happening in Lebanon presently. 
After the war in the summer of 06, Israel withdrew, and there is this, what they call the robust uniform force, French, Italians, Spanish, who are doing a reasonably uh, good job in the south in cooperation with the Lebanese army. And the fact of the matter is that since the war, the situation in the south is better. Hezbollah is restocking and rebuilding and replenishing its uh, capabilities, and maybe one day uh, there will be trouble again. But in the meantime, that is not so. And the peace is being kept, and there have been no incidents on the, on the, on the border. Therefore, the willingness on the Israeli side to consider perhaps some kind of international force, maybe in Gaza. The problem with that is, however, Gaza is not Lebanon. And as much as Lebanon is problematic in terms of central government and tottering on the verge of civil war, there is a government in Lebanon. And the government in Lebanon invited the international forces into Lebanon. And the Lebanese army is cooperating with the international forces. And therefore, it's working. International forces in Gaza? The chances of Hamas cooperating with them are remote, to put it mildly. And therefore, Israel may face a situation. This is why Israel will probably object to the idea. At least if I were asked, I would object to it. If there are European forces in Gaza, and Hamas fire the rockets over the Norwegians into the Israeli towns, which is probably what would happen, I'm not sure that the Norwegians and the Swedes would make a phenomenal effort to catch every perpetrator and to find all the places where the rockets are made. And when Israel retaliates, it will kill Norwegians and Swedes. And then Israel is in deep trouble, not only with Hamas, but with the Norwegians and the Swedes. We were in this business years ago when there were Irish regiments in southern Lebanon. Hezbollah used to sit next to an Irish position, fire rockets into Israel from an Irish position. Israel would retaliate, sometimes hit, sometimes miss, and kill Irish soldiers. We had an awful relationship with Ireland as a result. So there is a, a problem here with that. It's not, some people think that simply by bringing international forces somehow miraculously this, this will fix it. I, I, I have my doubts. So to conclude, I would argue that there are three options in the Israeli-Palestinian domain post-Annapolis. The one uh, rather uh, far-fetched one is that within no time there is a resolution, a resolution of the conflict for all time? Uh, probably not. The interim, I think, has a much better chance of succeeding than at any time in the past. And maybe this is the avenue, I would argue, this is the avenue we ought to pursue uh, with the help of uh, the US and the European Union. And I think that uh, there is some uh, reasonable chance that we will get there. But there is also a third option that Israel has to bear in mind as a possibility. If all else fails, Israel may have to withdraw unilaterally. If you say this in Israel today, this is very unpopular. Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza is regarded widely as a failure. Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza, and the rockets continue to fly. I do not think that that is a correct analysis. The facts are as they are. But it is in Israel's long-term interest to preserve the two-state option as the basis for a long-term solution. It does not serve Israel's long-term interests to maintain the occupation for the rest of time. There are those on the Arab side like Hamas, 
who would like to suck Israel into an eternal occupation. Seeing the status quo from the Arab side as working more for the Arab side than for the Israelis, and I think they're right. The long-term occupation will in the end create simply by a process of osmosis in the status quo, a one-state reality, which will prevent Israel from uh, attaining a situation or a settlement on the basis of an Israeli state and a Palestinian state living one next to the other, the preservation of the Israeli state. And it constantly, continuously delegitimizes Israel in the eyes of the international community. Time is not working for Israel in this respect. <coughs> And since time isn't working for Israel in this respect, there are many in Hamas who think it is. And thus the continuation of the rockets. Anything to prevent a settlement. Because the continuation of the status quo in the eyes of the Islamic radicals in the longer term works for them better than it works for Israel. I think they are right. And because uh, they might be right, Israel may have to resort, as it did a few years ago, to the unilateral option. <coughs> Not because it is ideal, and not because it's desirable, but because the alternatives are worse. Of course, people in Israel would say, and elsewhere, how can Israel possibly withdraw from the West Bank unilaterally and have the rockets, instead of flying into Zderot, a southern town far from Tel Aviv, have the rockets flying straight into Tel Aviv, which is what, exactly what would happen from the West Bank in terms of range or flying into Israel's one and only international airport, uh, which is you know, uh, a mile and a half or two from the West Bank. Um, the whole of Israel, the, the densely populated areas of Israel, uh, f uh, sit beneath the West Bank and would be in the range of these uh, Qassam rockets that are flying out of Gaza. So Israel must find some solution for the rockets, technological or otherwise, before it can consider a unilateral act but I still think that Israel must not remove the unilateral uh, possibility uh, from its list of options uh, simply because there may be those on the Palestinian side who will have every reason uh, because of their vision of time uh, to uh, constantly uh, erode the possibility of a two-state solution. So I will end uh, my comments there. Thank you for your attention and we can have a discussion. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.